Hello, and welcome to Enough Wicker, the podcast where we talk about what Irish men really know about cannolis as we discuss the greatest television show of all time, The Golden Girls. Hello, welcome to the Enough Wicker contest entry, where we explore the fine line between having a good time and being an obvious wanton slut. Hello, and welcome to a contest submission where I'm queen of a ball. Twice. I probably would have anyway. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. It is very special. And do you know why? Why, Melanie? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you might <laughs> you might have, uh, you know, guessed from our uh, introduction of three other people that weren't you at first. <laughs> but I know. Today they really did it our... well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I'm, I'm really impressed at your impression. It's amazing. Um, that today is our, our very special solely fan-centric episode of Enough Wicker on New Year's Day. Yeah, very exciting. A new year, new episode. Yeah, so I mean... New COVID strain. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all the greats. Yeah. (laughs) Well, first things first, Happy New Year. And I, you know, um, not to you, to our listeners. Oh, well, Um, to me too. (laughs) Yeah, I guess to you too, it's true. (laughs) But, uh, you know, just to refresh your memory, uh, late in the fall, we announced that we were taking submissions, fan submissions, for an Enough Wicker episode um, on your scholarly take on the Golden Girls. And, you know, essentially, we were looking for commentary that either shared a personal story or sort of the anatomy of a scene or a bit of dialogue or, you know, something that related, again, in a scholarly way, just to do a little bit of deep thinking on the world's greatest sitcom. And holy shit, you all delivered. (laughs) (laughs) And it's going to be pretty amazing here today. So buckle up. Obviously, you can probably already see on your podcast app that this is an extra long episode. um, And it's because we had so many incredible submissions. So basically, the structure of this is going to be that we um, you know, blocked out clips into groupings. It was really interesting, I thought. And I, you know, you can comment on this too, of like how many submissions kind of had the same themes as the others. Um, yeah, so, totally. Yeah. That's like, a, you know, and we, we, it comes up a lot because um, obviously, you know, we're watching all of these episodes in order. And so we're noticing themes and sort of like big picture takeaways. Um, and I think it just really speaks to why, Golden Girls think pieces often sort of, you know, they're not the same perspective at all, but I think that they all kind of follow these um, bigger themes and like archetypes and, and, you know, like relating to the characters and relationships. And these are all sort of like big things that we pull out of the show when we're, when we are looking at it in like a scholarly manner. And so it was really cool to see that, like, you know, it's not, we know it's not just us, but to hear these, (laughs) these observations that are totally original um but rooted in sort of factors that we know and have discussed about the show um i think it was really interesting and and like you know like you said everybody's submissions were so uh beyond my expectations of what we were gonna get they're so great (laughs) totally and i i think you're right about like they're all rooted in sort of the same thing even though they're all unique takes And I really hope that those of you listening today will do what Lauren and I did, which would be like, wow, yes, just like (laughs) exclaim (laughs) what they say. So um, and I also want to call attention to the fact that we had a lot of international submissions. I mean, we you know, we know that our podcast isn't just uh, 
the the dinky little us here but um i'm really impressed uh of how everybody pulled through so first things first thank you um should we get started yeah let's go all right okay first we have a block on self-care and relationships um (laughs) kind of you know again you could argue that like relationships are the entire show um (laughs) so you know the first two clips here from jen f and golden girls 85 talk about everyone's favorite divorce couple dorothy and stan and how very relatable if polarizing their relationship is and the last clip featured in this block is from Marin b and it's a really interesting observation about how sometimes the best kind of self-care in a relationship is actually to leave it even if it's painful to do so hi as a young fatal blossom of 46 i along with many of my friends have a stan in my life someone who uh we've been partnered with at a young age who shows up and knocks and waves and says, hi, it's me, Stan. When Sophia gets ill and Stan takes a wife, I identify with Dorothy. When I cry too, no one can enjoy their cake. She wants to be alone in the waiting room of the hospital. She doesn't even want the girls there, even though they're old enough. But Stan, she doesn't push away. We all know an old flame like that who can make us feel safe and warm. We cling to people who are there for us and have history with us. It's just comforting. Like an old shoe. Please note the balloon popping episode. I can't remember the name of it. And let's not forget, dear friends, Gershwin confused a lot of people when Uncle Angelo visited as a not priest priest. Stan represents that guy or girl we all turn to when we're alone or sad, even though more often than not, they are yutzes. I'm Golden Girls 85 on Twitter, and if you follow me, you know my very favorite episode of the Golden Girls is My Brother, My Father from Season 3. My Brother, My Father is written with such precision by Barry Finero and Mort Nathan that the farcical storyline remains taut. Consider Dorothy and Stan's story arc. The episode begins with Dorothy's hostility over pretending to still be married to Stan so Angela won't find out they're divorced. Who can blame her? This is a few episodes later than the audit, where Dorothy owes the IRS because of Stan. And yet, after a day of trading barbs with Stan and finally revealing the truth to Angelo, Dorothy feels conflicted when Stan suggests they remarry and takes it back a few minutes later. You didn't think I meant it, did you? Stan asks Dorothy. But her voice catches as she says, no, of course not. For a split second, she thought about it. And maybe she remembered their recent audit when Stan found out she had pawned her ring and bought it back for her. Maybe she remembered telling him it was the nicest thing anyone had ever done for her. It's a fleeting thought, because the hurricane has passed and Stan is leaving. And in a rare, unselfish gesture, Stan refuses to take the $50 Sophia had promised him. Stan doesn't notice the tears in Dorothy's eyes, and he doesn't see her lips pressed together. But the viewers do and Sophia does. Dorothy is left alone in the living room with her thoughts after Sophia says that Gershwin had confused a lot of people. The episode closes, and you can see that under Dorothy's acerbic exterior is a woman who was blindsided on the phone by her husband's divorce attorney. This episode has everyone except Sophia pretending to be someone they're not, and when you combine that with the hurricane and Sound of Music storylines, the episode might come across as silly, I don't think it is, because Dorothy and Stan both show their humanity. This isn't the first time Stan has asked Dorothy to take him back. 
Dorothy doesn't even seem to seriously consider it, but Stan's acknowledgement that he ruined their marriage is important to her. She knows she's better off without him, but it means something to her to witness Stan's decent side. And in this final scene, we see Dorothy's vulnerability. There is so much more to Dorothy, and I think this episode enriches her character. B. Arthur's Emmy was well-deserved. Hi, my name is Marin Brucker, and I am definitely fangirled out over the Golden Girls. I have a tattoo, been on the Jimmy Kimmel show, met Betty White kind of fan, um, so super psychotic. Uh, five minutes is really intimidating because there are so many things that I could talk about with this show. But one thing my friend Kate and I have recently discussed is the relationships that the girls have romantically on the show. And even when dealing with failed relationships, instead of playing games or being really super petty, they come right out and say, this isn't working because of X, Y, Z. I think one of my favorite examples of this is the Jean and Rose episode because Rose comes to Jean and openly says, I don't understand those feelings, but if I did, if I were like you, I would be flattered and proud. And so instead of you know, trying to avoid the whole situation, she maintains that relationship, that friendship by speaking about it. Uh, the other really amazing one is the episode with Dick Van Dyke and where uh, him and Dorothy are dating. And in the end, it's not about the circus. And Dorothy says, if I really loved you, I'd follow you anywhere, you know, and that is such a profound moment. Because, you know, he re retorts with, well, at our age, we do a lot of wishful thinking. So it's not that in any way, it wasn't that they didn't care for each other. They just didn't work. And they both acknowledge that like adults. And I feel that as a society, we've definitely gotten away from that. If you look at modern sitcoms or comedies they don't deal with relationships in that same effective manner where communication becomes key to whatever's going on between you and that other person. Um, there's also the, the one episode and I, I avoid it cause I'm not a huge fan, but uh, it's larceny and old lace. And Sophia's dating Rocco and he's putting up this front and at the end, she says, you kiss this pleasure palace goodbye. And he comes clean and he says, that was just my whole life savings. You know, I wanted to, to treat you like a queen. And she says, you know what? You already do. So it's not about the money. And just that, that brutal honesty of that moment. That's one of the facets that I uh, have come to review in the past couple like months other things that have always just killed me and I don't watch them because it's so painful are the brother can you spare a jacket and um the one with Lillian where she needs the money to get out of that lower class home and the fact that they realize at the end that it's not a happy ending 
you know, it's what happens as we get older, what happens as we age, who's there to take care of us. And it's pretty scary. So that's where my head's been at lately as I watch and rewatch the series constantly at night. I go to bed with it. When I wake up with my cats at four, it's on. Um, and I never get tired of it. Um, I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to be Mrs. Kenneth Whittingham? <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> um, those are, it's such a strong block to start with. And I think that um, starting with Jen's observations about everybody having a stand in their lives, I think that's yeah. a really powerful um thread because you know like Dorothy and Stan are so complicated and Golden Girls 85 touches on this too it's like they're in each other's lives not really by choice at least like at At least no longer yeah right but they do choose to maintain like a cordial friendship and like you know part of that is just because they're so bonded and and you know like I think that we have touched on the complication of Stan as a character. Um, And this comes up directly in an episode, but like, obviously they couldn't have all been bad times after that many years together, you know? So like, there's no way to not have some fond attachment to him. Um, And I think that it's really, um, really interesting to see where people fall on the spectrum of like, you know, Dorothy and Stan as like a, an entity how people feel about that relationship yeah but i i love how gold girls 85 also talks about like how dorothy knows she's better off without stan right now but like that acknowledgement that he ruined their marriage it really means something to her and i think you know he's also talking about how like um everybody but sophia is pretending to be someone else i think it's so fascinating of like the way that Dorothy and Stan's relationship has evolved and how they have to kind of keep, like they keep doing this dance of like, are we more on this end where we like each other? Are we more on this end where we hate each other? Is there resentment? Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is, you know, is there love? (laughs) Like there's so much that goes throughout the series. And I think it so speaks to just mature relationships. You know, at least when I was younger, you're just like, you have a best friend and they're the best in the world and that's it. And there's just, everything is black and white. (laughs) You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, there's not any room for nuance and the complication in a relationship where you can feel both things. You can feel love for a person as well as bitterness. Um, But it's, it's so fascinating. And I think just, you know, and Marin hits it on the head with just, again, the maturity and the recognition of, again, not being black or white in relationship. You can love someone, but also say that they're not for me. Like, I can't, this isn't the thing. It's not, again, that childhood naivete of saying, like, well, we're in love and nothing else matters, right? Right. So I think it's so fascinating. And that lesson of, like, Rose <laughs> letting down Jean being, like, the best possible way to break off a relationship is, like, oh, it's perfect. Yeah, totally. And I think um, her, Maren's point about Dorothy and Ken, um, where Ken says, like, you know, I was hoping that love would be enough or, or whatever, you know, yeah. like, that is such a powerful, um, such a powerful line, such a powerful piece. And like, that comes up also with Glenn O'Brien. And again, and again, like, even beyond romantic relationships, I think we see the challenge in this show of having to do something that sucks right now, but is better for you in the long run. And I don't know if it's because of their age that they have the wisdom to do that or having the experiences, having gone through relationships, et cetera. But I think that um, 
it's it's something that I also feel like modern TV shows are kind of embracing. And like, it's part of the evolution, I think, of just like our understanding of relationships and self-care as a concept that we should like value as a society. <laughs> yeah. um, better to be alone than unhappy. Whitney Houston. Yes, you know? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And one more thought on, like, the Dorothy and Ken storyline. It totally relates to Golden Girls 85 talking about the episode where she goes, the farcical storyline remains taut, which I love. because What a just line. Like, I mean, it, it, but that's so true for so many things. And particularly the Dorothy and Ken one, when you are reminded after they have this heady speech about being mature in relationships and turning it down, you're like, because he's a fucking clown? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, wait, wait, what? it works though it really does and it's like yeah it's just it's such a great you know example of just like they're they're all going through it they're all you know trying to get to the same spot together speaking of going through it um (laughs) there were a bunch of submissions that focused on identifying with characters and situations yeah and i know you as you said at the top like that's what makes this show so special like people are so connected to characters and you know i mean sometimes situations although not everybody has you know dated a clown but you know (laughs) Not everybody. Not everybody. <laughs> um, all right. So we'll move on to the next block. And in this block, uh, we have some folks who share um, about how watching the Golden Girls helped them through some really, really tough times. Um, so we have Sarah, we have TJ West, and we have Nicole G. And each of them are talking about um, the horrors of teenage bullying, the heaviness of grief and loss, and the endless frustration of getting a fucking doctor to believe you when you describe <laughs> what is happening to your body. Um, and I think, you know, the, the diversity of each of these clips and each of these personal situations, again, just really lends itself to how wide-reaching this show is for a sitcom. It feels... It feels a little bit um, nuts to be describing those three situations and being like, here's how the Golden Girls helped you through. But I think we have also both watched this show in like our darkest times. And I think that um, that was something that emerged as also another common theme. Absolutely. And I think everybody is going to relate to these clips um, from from that comfort viewing angle. Like you said, this is the comfort show. So here we go. All right, let's go. Hi. I'm Sarah from the Very Special Blog. I started watching the Golden Girls during peak awkward. 12 years old, sixth grade. My best friend, who I had been close with all through elementary school, decided earlier that year that I wasn't cool enough to be one of her middle school friends and straight up froze me out, as in literally would stare through me when I spoke to her like I wasn't even there. Luckily, on Sunday mornings, before the curated melodrama of recycled movies of the week began, the Golden Girls aired in a block on Lifetime. And suddenly, I kid you not, 12-year-old me was excited for menopause. Here were four women who knew exactly who they were. Dating was easy. Romance was secondary to friendship. And they had this great house with a lanai. Best of all, unlike 12-year-old me, they were never lonely because they all had each other. Eventually, I got older, which is how I'm here recording this now. And I made more friends. I also lost more friends. So here's where I'm going to throw a little group development theory your way because it helps explain how our girls stick together where other groups do not. We see the earliest iteration of group formation in the first season flashback episode, The Way We Met. In this episode, the girls enter the forming stage of Tuckman's stages of group development. This is where I should tell you I'm a former social worker, so I do have actual experience in this as opposed to the amateur vintage TV criticism I dish out on my blog. In the case of the latter, I really have no experience. I am just very opinionated. Anyway, back to our girls. 
the forming stage is where everyone is on the best behavior because everyone is a stranger and they're all trying to figure out the unspoken rules. They're all super polite, even though Rose is already revealing some very ditzy behavior that both Dorothy and Blanche bristle at. On their first roommate trip to the grocery store, they rapidly enter the storming phase, which is basically just a giant power struggle because no one's roles are established within the group yet. Everyone is less of a stranger, but there's very little trust at this stage. And we're all basically cave people still to some extent. So there's a lot of amygdala activity happening. Everyone is on high alert when groups are storming. After the big blowout fight over where to store the raisin bran, fridge, cabinet, or glass canister, and for the record, Rose is right on this one. Glass canister is objectively the right answer. The girls accidentally uncover their first set of shared values, laughter and cheesecake. This allows them to enter the norming phase, also known as the, okay, we all get how this works now and can get along well enough to keep working toward our shared goal as a team phase. But the flashback episode only establishes their group norms as a trio of roommates who need to pay rent. And that brings us to another flashback episode, Three on a Couch, from the show's third season. The girls pay a visit to a super incompetent psychiatrist who, instead of helping them work through their issues, just tells them they should all break up and go their separate ways. When really what's happening is that due to a variety of incidences that I don't have time to get into in five minutes, the group has cycled back to the storming phase. And that's the really important thing you might not read about in a textbook version of Tuckman's model. Groups can cycle regularly. We're all human beings with a lot of internal and external things in our individual lives that can change us pretty frequently. And when we change, our groups change too. When you re-enter the storming phase, you have to reset your group norms. And that's, in a nutshell, hard. That's why groups tend to break up when they're storming, unless good leadership emerges that helps the group remain intact. And here's our moment of empowerment. In informal groups like friend groups, anyone in the group can emerge as a leader. The group also changes when we change the members. And thank God for new members because it's actually Sophia who emerges as group leader and reminds the girls of their shared values. The episode ends in a mirror image of the way we met, except this time Dorothy doesn't stop Blanche when she goes to retrieve the whipped cream from her bedroom. See? Group norms. They change. But seriously, does Blanche have a mini fridge in that room? I sure hope so with the amount of whipped cream she keeps in there. Food safety is important, even if you're using it for extracurricular activities. And yes, groups do end, but it's always better to end in a cordial adjournment phase, like when one of you gets married to Leslie Nielsen, than to break apart when you're storming and miserable. One last note, I skipped over the performing phase for the sake of time. This is what happens after group's norm. All members feel valued and they start doing really well together. For an example of this, you can just watch the performance portion of Henny Penny, straight, no chaser. Hello, enough wicker folks. I am TJ West. Um, you've heard my voice before, so I couldn't resist uh, the opportunity to speak to you all again about my favorite show. So I wanted to talk today about the episode in season seven, which is called Room Seven, which as you'll recall, is where Blanche goes back to her plantation, or her grandmother's plantation, which is about to be demolished. And while she's there, she sort of has to contend with the reality of essentially her grandmother's passing. Like, I think that's really the sort of, the deeper message of this episode and the reason that I find it so resonant. Um, so this is a deeply personal story, so I'll try to keep my composure. So. Around 2004, when I was a sophomore in college, my grandfather passed away while I was on holiday break. And obviously I was deeply upset, but I found it very difficult to cry about it. 
And it wasn't until I was watching this episode on TV, on Lifetime at the time, uh, that I was watching this episode. And even though, of course, it's kind of ridiculous in the way that so many of the episodes of season seven tend to be, I found it deeply resonant the moments when Blanche goes back to her, to her grandmother's plantation, which, of course, are silly. But I remember distinctly when Blanche comes downstairs with the wind chimes and she's like, you know, I know that it's time to let go. And then as she's leaving the house, she hears, you know, her younger self laughing as she, you know, recalls the many happy Christmases spent at the plantation. And, you know, at the time, I just started sobbing, which to be fair, I sob about a lot of things. I have a hair trigger tear duct, but for some reason, you know, as someone who spent a great deal of time with my own grandparents at their home in the country, like this seeing Blanche contending with her past and that, you know, that loss of herself, a part of herself that's going to be demolished really struck me and allowed me to grieve for my grandfather in a way that I had not been able to do before. Not that I wasn't sad, but there was just something about it that triggered the tears that I found very cathartic. I've had, a, I too have had a catharticism as, as Rose would say, but I'm not one to kiss and catharticize. but I digress. So at the time I was, you know, I was really astounded at how phenomenally adept this show has always been um, at capturing the deep pathos and humor at the same moment. And that's very much in display all through this episode. And it reaches its conclusion in the post-credit sequence where, you know, She's where Blanche is listening to the wind chimes, which obviously are deeply resonant for me as well. And then she says, okay, the Grammy, that's enough. And then she says, oh, pack of wood. So again, one of those key moments where this series throughout its run was so deft at capturing moments of deep emotion, then following it up immediately afterward with a laugh. And that's true. Obviously, I think in my interview, I mentioned also the Ebb Times Revenge and Rose's story about slow Ingmar. And it's one of those things that I think allows the show to endure and makes it so deeply emotionally connected to so many of us in our lives. And now that my, you know, my grandmother who passed away about a year ago, when I watched that episode with the grandmother's plantation, it's even more resonant to me than it was before, because, you know, that was my last grandparent. And so there is this sense of I'm able to communicate or feel a deep emotional connection with Blanche's struggle. And Blanche, of all of the, the characters, I think, deals with that loss so much, you know, and there's a similar moment when she's at um, Big Daddy's tombstone. She's a nobody's little girl anymore. And so, you know, when I, again, when I watch this episode, Room 7, I just feel deeply in my soul that sense of, wow, this is real. And you really have to contend with the enormous and overwhelming feelings of grief. But the thing about the Golden Girls is that it also shows us that it is through humor and through your friendships that you can contend with that and that you're never alone. And though, of course, death is always a part of life and is it becomes more so the older you get, that's exactly when those joyous uh, relationships in your life and the joyous people and the people that you can share that joy with become ever more crucial to maintaining your sanity. So thank you so much for this chance to gush about the Golden Girls. I'll always take an opportunity and So Golden Girls has such a special place in my heart um, because I started watching it at kind of a 
not great time in my life where I was kind of lonely and it was kind of a lifeline for me, which sounds sort of silly, but you know, I think fans of the show understand. Um, There's so many episodes that I could go into, but if I had to pick a favorite, I'd say it's the two part episode at the begin, beginning of season five um, called sick and tired where Dorothy uh, is experiencing fatigue and flu, a lot of flu-like symptoms. And it takes this two-part episode for her to finally get diagnosed with what at the time was a new illness called fr- chronic fatigue syndrome, which is now much more common, much more mainstream. Um, but I really love that episode, A, because B is always amazing. Besides her comedic acting, her serious acting is incredible. Um, the way Estelle is concerned as her mother is great as well. Um, but for me personally, I, that, that episode has really touched me over the years as I've watched it again, as, as I've dealt with my own issues and, you know, many women have in dealing with doctors and not being taken seriously and, you know, being told just to, you know, kind of get over it or they're being overdramatic or something like that. But, you know, the way she confronted the doctor at the very end in the restaurant was kind of cathartic for any of any person who's felt like they're not taken seriously by a doctor. Um, so that's, that's the episode that I, I really love the best because I think it's so reflective of what women have gone through especially you know at that time it's a long time ago um but it's still still very true today even though there have been some some good changes that have come since then but you know for dorothy for someone who would have been born in the late 20s early 30s um you know maybe a lot of women like that would have just sort of expected that sort of treatment or kind of just dealt with it but she confronted it and that's what i love about that episode Thanks. I love I love all of those clips. I I mean, like you said at the beginning, like the <laughs> how different they all are, but how similar they are. Like you said, in our darkest days, and just you know how how much people identify with the show in their own personal lives, even when it's unexpected from both perspectives. Like Sarah, like. watching it during peak awkward i mean talk about like what the writers of the golden girls didn't expect right of just like oh we're you know we're writing the show to like just make it more relatable for this like specific demographic and you have like a 12 year old getting excited about menopause right she doesn't even have a period yet it's just really it's amazing it's amazing um and i so i i want to talk about tj west too i i thought you know, I mean, you're, you are like the resident Blanche family scholar, right? So, mm. but like when, when he's talking about like the juxtaposition of like Pekka Wood and like, I'm nobody's little girl anymore of like the different stages of grief, my mind was blown. I mean, yeah. it's so amazing. It totally, it really was. And I think it also, um, his clip actually, I, I a lot of these, um, a little bit emotional in a way again like I didn't expect to have something. You got emotional? Yeah I know I don't like to talk about it. <laughs> um, two reactions I thought were really interesting because it does make sense like her grandmother's been dead for a really long time right and right. so she's able to 
treat it in a way that's different than when her father dies right away and like also reckoning with what that means for her in both instances um and I think that you know that scene in um, the episode where Big Daddy dies is always really really heavy and really hard to watch um and I never really thought of Room 7 as like a particularly sad episode and I still don't but I think that using media to sort of force you to confront your own emotions is something that I strongly relate to. And often it's not even like a voluntary thing, but you know, people will be like, Oh, I need to cry. So I'm going to watch like steel magnolias or something like we all kind of have that. Um, And I think particularly if you're somebody who does kind of shy away from negative feelings, it can be, it can be necessary to like force that out of you. And so I think that his point about like never even really having grieved himself um, fully until watching this episode was um, really, really relatable. Yeah. I mean, oh God. And speaking, I mean, speaking of relatable, talking about sick and tired, Nicole G was talking about like personal medical issues. I mean, it's, it's just, it's mind blowing that there are all of these very special episodes, uncomfortable episodes, episodes that deal with, again, like those dark themes and, I myself like previously had you know again often would shy away from that because sometimes I'm going you know I just I want to go to the Golden Girls to relax and like laugh but the idea of also going to specific episodes that really will trigger like a like a sadder emotional response or like is really an interesting concept and I think you and I have talked about this a lot when we've gone through you know, the episode so far that we've gone through in the podcast of, of being like, oh, I always avoid this one, some, you know, when it comes yeah, on or, sure. and that kind of thing. But now, you know, later in life of actually approaching that and saying, hey, this is actually really, it's like a healthy thing <laughs> to yeah. watch them sometimes. And like, I can't imagine. And I, I, I think the other thing that's so frustrating about Sick and Tired is that it's still relevant today. Oh my God. Like just everything with women not being listened to and just dismissive doctors and just how broken everything medical is. Yeah. I have some depressing statistics as I usually do come in with. (laughs) (laughs) Exciting. Um, Okay. So I actually, uh, this is about pregnant women um, specifically, but, uh, or I I guess I was doing research on pregnant women specifically um, and particularly how, the maternal health of black women in the U S is such a problem. Um, consider particularly considering how, you know, quote unquote developed we are. Um, yeah. Black women who give birth should not be experiencing the trauma and the levels of death that they are. Um, but so basically, uh, related to doctors, not believing you, <laughs> um, they, in 2020, the association of American medical colleges, published results from a survey that found that nearly half of white medical students in the U.S. believed that Black people had less sensitive nerve endings than white people. Um, And that relates to treatment as white patients are 22% more likely to receive pain medication than Black patients. And, you know, so that is um, regarding race, but also if you look at gender, Um, there was a study at the University of Miami in 2021 that found when male and female patients expressed equal levels of pain, observers viewed the female, uh, the female patient's pain as less intense, and they were more likely to recommend therapy as a treatment to women versus medication or like physical, um, physical, yeah, to the men. And so, you know, when you talk about intersectionality, it's like black women have both of these 
biases in the medical community to confront when they're trying to tell doctors, you know, here's what's going on with me, just saying that doctors dismiss them. And even, you know, people get dismissed all the time for just like, oh, it's your weight or, you know, like, oh, it's this, it's that. And it's like, oh, yeah, which we'll hear about soon. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. And, And that's what I mean. It's just like, it doesn't stop. Yeah. And I, it's, it's kind of amazing about, you know, like, again, talking about when we were talking about avoiding the darker episodes or like, like embracing them. I think that that's what was amazing about Nicole G's piece and, and, and Sarah's and TJ's. I mean, it's just, you're embracing these tough storylines, particularly if it relates to something you're personally going through um, because that's also life, right? It's like, you know, it's, it's really hard to find the mix of like a self-care thing where you're just not going to think about all these terrible things affecting you or being dismissed by doctors, etc. But like, it, it is amazing that we have this vehicle of a sitcom and these incredibly relatable characters to kind of play it out on screen and process things for you in some way. Um, even when, you know, it's really hard to face the reality of life in such grim statistics as you right. just shared. <laughs> but yeah, um, amazing. So, you know, speaking of like identifying with, with characters and identifying with storylines. So, you know, the, there is an official scholarly definition of identification, which is basically like audience members experience like a reception of a text, you know, a text in this case being <laughs> a television episode and interpretation of it from the inside like as if the events were actually happening to them so this next block um we have chrissy w rose w and perry m talking about you know relating to a character specifically that are experiencing heavy things so talking about you know rose talks about how she has a first person experience with like a mother like blanche which is just fascinating gonna blow you Mm. all away Chrissy was also, as we just mentioned, like dismissed by doctors, surprise, because she's fat. And the theme, she talks a lot about the theme of body shaming and acceptance in our culture. And Perry's clip is about not being out to his family and and really relating to Clayton and particularly his interactions with Blanche. Two and a half hours. I thought you died. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me was a question I asked myself repeatedly a few years ago. I am not Lorraine Maslansky, but I'd like to talk about how the first two episodes of season five, Sick and Tired, parts one and two, speak to me in more meaningful ways after a years-long journey and still incomplete chronic illness diagnoses. In 2015, I was in my third year of a PhD program when I started feeling like something was very wrong. My whole body ached and not in the, well, so does mine, honey. That's why I want to go on this date, Blanche way. I was fatigued and just felt this immense physical heaviness, like my entire environment was made of water and I was wearing cement clothing. At first, I attributed it to being a stressed, overworked PhD student, which is a separate larger issue, but like Sophia, I digress, but it kept getting worse. I would swell and ache to the point of being uncomfortable in any position. I feel Dorothy so much when she says, I am at a point now where I am so exhausted that sometimes I cannot speak, literally cannot speak. I can't concentrate, I forget things, I get confused, and she breaks down. It gets me every time. I teach too and have had to stop class for brain fog and exhaustion on more than one occasion. While Dorothy and I have many similarities in these episodes, including noticeable trouble digesting raw vegetables, we and our experiences were dismissed for different reasons. When I finally tried to describe some of my symptoms with my doctor, I was basically told I was fat. 
No young Jeffrey Tambor told me to get dressed, go home, you're fine, go home, enjoy your life. No one asked if I was divorced or if I see men. No Dr. Bud told me to go to a hypnotist, take a cruise, or dye my hair. They repeatedly told me to go home and lose weight, and all my pain and problems would disappear. We also had very different follow-through experiences. She didn't give up going to Harry Weston, a friend who believed her and referred her to a neurologist. I didn't advocate for myself. I believed what they said. Deep down, I knew it was something else, but like B. Arthur in the series, the put-downs take a toll. I'm not a doctor. I mean, I am, but not that kind. So I didn't know what to do. I let it go until I moved to another state after finishing my PhD and had better insurance. I immediately went to a doctor and started over. I was hoping to find a doctor with the hands of a peasant and the soul of a poet. I found my Dr. Chang. He listened and ordered a series of tests. That started me on a multi-year journey of specialists and diagnoses trying to figure out my chronic illness profile. It's frustrating and defeating to not be believed, to be dismissed. There are so many misconceptions and stigmas surrounding chronic illness. Watching Dorothy be dismissed, her symptoms, her very real experience is hard to watch. The most relatable parts of the episode for me were her breakdown in the hotel room with Rose when they were in the big potato. Everyone keeps telling me I'm crazy. Maybe I am crazy. Everyone kept telling me I felt like shit because I was fat. Maybe I deserve to feel like shit for being so fat. I knew that wasn't all of it or any of it but it's frustrating to just want answers and not get any. When they were in Dr. Chang's office, and I know this conversation with Dorothy is not super medically accurate, but the idea that with some test results, they'll compose a profile that thousands of people fit, and there are variations in all diseases, and no one thing relieves symptoms in everyone. You have to learn to adapt and coexist with your illness because it's now your constant companion. It's very comforting for me. I still don't have a complete picture, and it's been four years. When they're in the restaurant and the server asks what they're celebrating and Sophia says, my daughter found out she has a debilitating disease and Dorothy relieved says, and it has a name, a different feeling from naming Freddie Peterson, but still a good feeling. It's such a relief to just be sick, not sick and crazy, to at least know you have something and that other people have the same thing. The best part is at the end when she takes the opportunity to so eloquently tell Dr. Bud to fuck all the way off, to remind him you dismissed me. You made me feel crazy, like I had made it all up. No one deserves that kind of treatment, Dr. Bud. No one. I have played that scenario with the doctor who dismissed me as just being fat over in my mind a number of times, and I cheer for Dorothy every time I watch it. We all know continuity is in the show's strong suit, but I've often wondered why there wasn't more of this story weaved into the last three seasons. All chronic illnesses are different with each individual. They present and progress differently. And since chronic illness was so personal to Susan Harris, it would have been a wonderful opportunity to keep this conversation going and bring awareness to the varied nature of these diseases and added some depth to the threads of illness and healthcare within the series. Dorothy was told she was depressed. I was dismissed for being fat. Both are bullshit reasons. And these episodes remind me that there are others like me and help make being sick and tired a little easier to live with. Thank you for letting me share. So I want to talk about the episode Blanche's Little Girl. When I heard the Enough Whipper pod on this episode, I was struck by how differently I viewed this episode my whole life versus how you guys saw it. And that I find it to be one of the more essential episodes of the show and Blanche's arc. You see, I have a mother-daughter relationship just like the one she shares with Becky. My mom has some narcissistic tendencies and comes from the same type of Southern Belle background Blanche does. 
I'm a bit of an artistic type who is heavier than my mom would like, and I've constantly dealt with facing her rejection at my choices. This episode is honestly eerily true to life for me. From the way Blanche couches critiques and compliments so she can have deniability when Becky calls her out on it, to the way Blanche is more concerned about building their relationship because of some traditional roles she feels they should fill. The one that she's jealous of in her roommate's relationship with their families. Instead of wanting to meet Becky where she is and get to know her for the sake of the person she is. I see so much of myself in Becky, except I often don't even have the courage to tell my mom, if you don't stop, I'm going to have to leave again. Sometimes I let my mother's passive aggression build to a boiling point and storm out the way Becky does at the end of the episode, and it usually estranges us further, until, like Becky, I start to feel guilty that I've done something I'll regret. Blanche's later reconciliations with Becky make me quite sad considering how drastically they recast her. It's like they couldn't let Becky have the story of becoming a mother unless she looked quote-unquote normal. That is, did exactly what Blanche wanted her to do, and diet. Though their relationship remains largely the same, their future is missing a vital piece of hope for Becky herself. Hope and self-love, no matter what her size. But I still think the episode itself, Blanche's Little Girl, is more true to life than it would seem. Not only is Blanche an eerie depiction of someone I know, but the biggest issue you all had with the episode is the one I found to be unfortunately just as realistic. Dorothy, Sophia, and Rose making jokes about Becky's weight and allowing Blanche to feel secure in her feelings about that weight, though questioning her other actions towards her, is just as real to me as Blanche's narcissism. There's a term that people with relationships with narcissistic people use, flying monkeys. They are friends or family who go along with narcs, who often sympathize with victims just enough that the victim remains ensnared in the narc's web. Often it's while remaining generally decent people and being duped themselves into thinking the narc truly cares, whether it's because of past experiences or traditional expectations, such as the bond between a mother and child. They may not see what's really going on, and while Dorothy, Sophia, and Rose all want Blanche to act against Jeremy, they take a back seat when they don't recognize that their own words might be hurting her. I can't tell you how many times I've had to hear, it's just a joke, from relatives about my weight, or anything else that I might enjoy, expecting me to not take it seriously, only for my mother to turn around and use that as an excuse to say, you know, you really ought to lose some weight, it's not healthy, you really ought to do this. It's like the jokes make it okay for those who care about me to know it's not going to be a joke forever. And Becky, best of all, is written so accurately to my own experiences. Jeremy is scum of the earth, and everyone questions why she could possibly be with him, including you guys. Well, I never needed to question it. I've been there. Children of narcs often date or marry those who display narcissistic tendencies. They know that they will never fix their parent with the love they've been taught to give. So they seek out someone with potential to pour all that trained energy into. So for me, this is a really hard episode to watch, but it's also one that feels just as important as any other special episode. Thankfully, my mom and I are on the mend and working on our relationship like Becky and Blanche eventually do, but I too remain cautious. I hope this may have changed your perspective a little bit about this episode, and I look forward to when you tackle Becky's next few appearances. Hi, Enough Wicker. I've been a fan of the Golden Girls for about nine years. 
and I love your podcast. So a little about me. I am a gay man who is not out to his family. And I was raised in a Southern Baptist home right outside Atlanta, Georgia. So I resonate a lot with Clayton. And I'd like to talk about Clayton coming out to Blanche in Scared Straight, the episode from season four. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, and I'd like to start by talking about Blanche's initial reaction to Clayton coming out to her. So anybody's initial reaction to somebody coming out to them is vital to the future of their relationship. Facial emotion and body language communicate a lot. So Blanche's laughter at Clayton probably doesn't feel good to him when he's sharing something um, so important to him that he's been uh, holding in for so long. Um, and I think she's laughing because of their sibling dynamic. Um, something else that I think highlights their sibling dynamic is when she accuses Clayton of coming out to her as revenge. Um, I can't imagine anybody else having that sort of reaction other than a sibling or a sibling type uh, person. That also brings up the point that uh, a lot of religious people, specifically in the Southern Baptist world, think that being gay is a choice. So I, I hear Blanche saying that she thinks that being gay is a choice when she's accusing Clayton uh, with coming out as revenge. And uh, that's really similar to a lot of the things that I heard growing up and that I had to unlearn myself that um, being gay is a choice and all that. Um, so when I saw this episode for the first time, it really made um, my stomach drop and made me listen uh, really carefully and do a lot of deep thinking. Um, and I also admire Rue McClanahan a lot for being uh, the character that learns a lot. Um, and I think, um, of, of course, for the 80s, that um, this was a really monumental episode for the LGBTQ plus 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 community. Um, and the uh, point of this scene that really makes me crawl and cringe is when Blanche says, Clayton, you look me in the face and tell me you are what you said you are. And it, I hear her saying that she does not want to say the word gay, that she thinks it's a bad word. And that's probably because she heard um, Big Daddy and Big Mommy um, saying uh, words like gay or homosexual in hushed tones um, because they believe it's a sin. So when she's not able to say the word gay, it probably hurts Clayton that much more um, and 
for Blanche to come around as quickly as she does is uh, pretty monumental. And I couldn't imagine um, my own family coming around as quickly um, or understanding in that same way. Um, But I'm really lucky to have the friends and chosen family that I have. Um, And I'm really grateful for the Golden Girls um, because um, that episode made me think more deeply about what being gay is and what coming out is like. Um, So thank you for this opportunity. Something about this whole process really like transcends the importance of sitcoms in general. And it it just, (laughs) I feel like people are sharing such, um, you know, deeply personal anecdotes. um, And that is, it's just so wonderful to hear these things. And, And also just to hear how universal again, like, these themes are um you know i wanted to to call out in perry's clip we talked about this actually when we had chris gallo um from golden ghost post yeah. she will appear later in this episode actually um about how <laughs> spoiler alert. reaction is yeah <laughs> yeah um about how blanche's reaction to coming out when when clayton comes out is is really bad and i think that um i think it's not billed that way right like i think it's like it's when you watch it, it's kind of like, oh, it's not great, whatever. But like, as Perry says, like, that's maybe the worst, one of the yeah. worst possible things you can do is to, to first of all, assume, <laughs> you know, right. And like, assume, you know, somebody's own sexuality better than them. And we said this too, in, in the, um, in the episode about Scared Street, but it's, I think we see it a little bit more now with, um, trans people and gender non-conforming identities yes. of like you know people yes. being like no you're not that. well like how what's wrong with you how, how could, how you, could you, you know tell someone you're else that they young. are yeah yeah seriously yeah no i mean it, it's I, I mean also just giving a hat tip to how vulnerable all of these stories are and again just thank you especially to these three for being so vulnerable and i think part of the importance of storytelling and personal storytelling at that is that other people will hear it and we'll relate to it. So I really appreciate that because I guarantee that people listening to this episode are really, they're, they're feeling these stories. I mean, they're incredible. So I think it's, it's this like the golden girls begets these clips begets other people like really processing that information. So I just wanted to say that at the top here. And I think, um, you know, the, the, I, I want to talk about roses for a minute um, is that I just love how, this submission and her perspective on it based on her first person experience was something that, you know, like neither of us had ever considered. We, we did not have that lived experience. So it really, I think this clip more than any other clip really, you know, made me see things from a different perspective, which is hello. That's what this is all about. (laughs) That's what scholarship is about. That's what this show is about to me is like inviting those different interpretations and perspectives. And I think, you know, the, the flying monkeys piece was amazing. Oh, and yeah. the bit about Jeremy as a very specific choice. I mean, holy shit. And I think, you know, for, for my part, I think we were taking away a lot of Becky's agency by focusing so much on Blanche's reaction to her and not thinking that Becky might actually be making these very specific choices because of the way that Blanche is. So yeah. I really appreciated that. That one, again, like really twisted my mind in a really good way. Totally. And I think that, you know, I was 
not to let us off the hook for for not considering Peggy's perspective, but <laughs> I feel like that's done very purposefully because when she does come back as like a skinny Becky with a baby, it's more more like her and Blanche are kind of equals, you know, even in the in the story in the arc of the story. Whereas yeah. in the Jeremy episode, Becky is kind of like a prop for Blanche's. Um, you know, like Becky, I guess, leaves Jeremy. So there's that, but it, it feels like the main focus is Blanche getting Becky back. Well, Um, it's similar to how it's the same thing, although to a lesser degree, I would argue in the Clayton episode that that Perry talks about that we're Um, just, you know, like we're just along for the ride and, you know, Blanche essentially accuses him of like getting revenge on her, which is horrible, but like you never consider, or I never considered those perspectives until, you know, Perry and, and Rose talked about it. You know, I think right. what's fascinating is like Chrissy's clip I had considered, but like, again, I don't have that personal experience and I don't have that, that specific identification with watching a character on the show from 30 freaking years ago. <laughs> like, and like then saying, Oh my God, I lived that last week. You know, like yeah. that, that's in, that's a, that's a mind fuck right there. So, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really amazing. I, I just think, again, the show just continues to blow my mind. And it's kind of incredible after turning it over and over and over again that, you know, sort of these fresh perspectives are coming up. And we have, you know, our, our wonderful uh, fans to thank. Yeah, yeah. And Chrissy's clip, one thing on Chrissy's clip, it really, um, it reminded me a lot of Elizabeth Hugo, Dr. Elizabeth yes. Hugo, who we had on the show last year, um, talking about her experience with COVID and how dismissed she COVID. was. For, right, exactly. And it's just such an easy, recent example of, um, you know, something so tangible that you can be like, oh, you would think that doctors have evolved. Or, you know, I don't mean to throw all doctors under the bus, but like the medical approach to somebody Hashtag not who's overweight or obese or what, right, exactly. <laughs> right, but like you would think the medical understanding of weight and our relationship to health and weight would be a little bit more evolved and I, I think in some circles it certainly is but like clearly not universally and or just that the fact that something can be so new again like in sick and tired that we don't know enough about it right now. So everything's not black and white, Doc. Like, maybe we don't know about it. So why are you immediately dismissing this woman? And, yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's so frustrating. Um, and it's really, yeah, it's really heavy. I, I, so I know you have a small threshold for heaviness here. So <laughs> let's take a little time out. We're going to have a very <laughs> fun clip from our pal Riva, um, uh, a woman who swears, drinks, and rips everyone apart for fat-shaming Becky. So <laughs> enjoy this. Hello, enough wicker besties. This is Reva. You may know me as at Reeves526 on Twitter or by my Indian name, Dances With Nobody. I wanted to talk briefly about why the episode Blanche's Little Girl is fucking bullshit. And you guys, when you talked about this episode, you really touched on a lot of things that I was going to say. But what I also want to add is a few things. So first of all, um, Sophia. So, obviously, Sophia says horrible things when Becky first, you know, gets to the house and is just, you know, a mean old lady. Um, But after Jeremy arrives and, you know, he's unbelievably cruel to Becky and Sophia comes into the kitchen, she's like, I don't want to listen to that crap. I don't want to listen to 
Becky talking about marrying that idiot. So it's like, you know, you can't say those horrible things and then be upset that someone else is saying those horrible things, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. It's like, it, it it's like, don't, don't fucking say that shit if you're going to then come and defend her. And there's no defending Jeremy, obviously, but it's like, okay, Sophia, if you're really not a mean old lady, um, and you do care about people, which, you know, I know that she does, it's like, I, I just don't like that contradiction. It's like, you know, even though maybe, you know, it was supposed to be funny, it was not. It was cool. And just as you had mentioned in your podcast about this episode from Blanche, as you know, how can you be happy, like, you know, look at yourself, which is a terrible thing to say. And then, you know, I think, honestly, one of the things that just sticks out in this episode to me is that Blanche, Blanche is all about her looks. You know, she faked her own death because her town valued her mind over her body. She almost got plastic surgery numerous times. She was practically suicidal when she found out she was menopausal. So she's all about looks. And I think that Becky no longer being model beautiful and model thin uh, is something that Blanche takes personally. You know, I think that she thinks it's a reflection of her, which is why she says, you know, how can you be happy with yourself when you on a strict diet? And, you know, I just think while she, you know, she obviously loves Becky, it is, I think that she is not focused on the correct problem. Like Becky, obviously, there's a reason, you know, we don't really get into so many details about why she gained all this weight, but she's, you know, dating and potentially going to marry this guy that treats her like absolute shit and, you know, when Blanche finally points it out after Jeremy wants to see who mistakes her for Tommy Lasorda and Dorothy loses her shit and, you know, Sunnybrook Farm, whatever. But, like, it, you know, Becky just says, you know, look at me, I'm not a catch. Where earlier in the episode she said she was happy with herself. So this is a very conflicted woman, and Blanche is obviously not focusing on, on the right thing. She's focusing on her looks only, and then at the end of the episode is saying, you know, you're too, you know, you're too good and you're too kind for him. Well, where was that, you know, two weeks ago when she first got here and you were chastising her for being the fattest. So I just think it, it's a really, it's a really fucked up episode. I hope that, um, when Jeremy flew back to Paris by himself, he got hit by a cab. All right. Thank you so much. I needed that. Thank you, Reva. <laughs> <laughs> so great i want a beer right now oh, or uh, okay well all right so that was a good break um next we're gonna move into a section on social commentary um and we have george our friend from meanwhile at the podcast who calls out how open and honest the girls were with each other and why that kind of honesty seems to be a problem for a lot of men which i thought was such a interesting perspective and I think honestly the reason that I thought um that was so sort of mind-blowing for me is because I know that about I would say mostly like heterosexual cisgender men have a lot of trouble talking about their feelings and it's you know like they've been conditioned not to um but to hear George's perspective particularly as like a young guy 
who you know was about to go out with his friends before but like before he went out he watched the golden girls with like his mom like you know imagine the difference in watching an episode of the golden girls where they're all sitting around the table like freely talking about sex or feelings or whatever and then being like a 21 year old guy at a bar with your friends like such a far (laughs) you know polarization there totally totally i mean yeah george's clip is is a trip for sure um and after after george we're gonna have um as mentioned our pal chris gallo from golden girls posters is going to talk about the girl's obsession with money and how Mm. that is a great representation of the 1980s in general hi lauren and sarah it's your old pal george Hanna from meanwhile the podcast you know the Saturday morning cartoon to your scholarly examination of the Golden Girls? I'm here to talk about an episode of the show that continues to resonate with me until this very day. Those who know me might guess I'd talk about one of the Christmas episodes, of which Twas the Nightmare Before Christmas from Season 2 is the best. Don't at me, because you all know Surfing Safari is now part of your Christmas playlist. I almost talked about my brother my father because, well, it's just a hell of an episode. I almost chose Heart Attack from Season 1 due to the poignant views of death that each Golden Girl brings to the table. But I think I already discussed that with you either when I was on your show with my co-host Kristen or when you both appeared on our show. Instead, I chose Job Hunting. There are two key subjects in this episode that took on meaning in different ways as I have progressed to the age of the Golden Girls themselves in this first season. Picture it. Long Island, 1986. A young man is watching the Golden Girls on Saturday night before going out with the guys. And here are three older women discussing their sex lives. It was funny, it was interesting, and it was eye-opening. Because until then, I don't think I ever thought about people my parents' age, much less my grandparents' age, having sex and talking so candidly about it. Fast forward to today, and I know people my age are having sex and talking about it. Yet I wonder if men are capable of having as honest a conversation about it as these fictional women had, no matter how old they are. Things like Blanche's urges and Rose's not seeing a naked man until her wedding night would most likely result in a more bawdy type of conversation potentially full of ridicule. In fact, I'm almost convinced men, golden or otherwise, are incapable of this kind of honesty with each other. And you know what? That's a shame. And to be honest, I'm guilty of this myself. On top of this, Rose is subject to age discrimination as she is forced to look for a new job. Now, having been laid off in my late 40s, I feel I was a victim of this, and partly due to my own inadequacies in using modern methods to look for work. As we live longer and stay in the workforce because we can't afford to retire, the job market seems like it has no room for those of us who are either approaching or are the age of the Golden Girls themselves. In fact, the cycle still is kick out those who have aged out in favor of the next generation. Unfortunately, life hasn't matched what the job cycle truly is. I didn't give that particular plot point as much attention as I do now. 
I focused on the sex discussion, but this episode is so much more than that. The topics addressed here and in so many other episodes are as relevant today as they were when they first aired. There are many layers that still make me think even to this day. Like, what did Charlie finally do to make Rose's eyes go to the back of her head? Now I know I'm being a little facetious there. But this episode has so much in it, and I think it may be ignored by others as a an episode that can teach, make people think, and actually open up dialogue between people over so many topics. The age discrimination, the job loss, sex, being honest about it. There's so much here. So if you haven't thought about it before, go revisit Season 1, Episode 22, Job Hunting, and see if you agree with me in the way I think about this. And as always, thank you for being a friend. Happy Holidays. Hello, Enough Wicker. This is Chris of Golden Girls Posters on Instagram. Um, I'm so glad to be a friend and confidant. And I just, I had some thoughts I'd like to share. Um, I've been racking my brain for the last few weeks about what to talk about here. And I figure, why not focus on one of my favorite episodes, which is Grab That Dough, which is arguably one of the more outlandish, fluffy type episodes because it doesn't really deal with any kind of serious issue. You know, um, basically the girls just want to get onto a game show and win a lot of money. And that got me thinking, why are they so obsessed with money? And going through so many episodes, you realize that money is a big theme throughout this series. And it's not surprising that this show was made in the 80s and so many episodes, the characters are obsessed with money because, of course, it was, you know, the year of Ronald Reagan. It's the 80s. It's all about excess. It's all about money. It's about greed. And the economy was booming and everything was just you know, hunky-dory. But here are these four older women sharing a house together. They can't even afford their own place to live. Um, And money is a theme throughout the entire series. From Big Daddy's Little Lady, they're writing, they enter a song contest to win money. There's a whole episode called One for the Money. With the dance marathon, they start a catering business. There's bringing a baby They're literally taking care of a pig, hoping for the pig to die so that Rose can get the inherit. you know, I don't even know if you'd call it an inheritance, but money from just raising a pig. Then there's Grab That Dough, which is literally all centered around a game show where you win money. There's Brother Can You Spare That Jacket, where they're obsessed with this lotto ticket because they just won $10,000 on a scratch-off ticket. There's the auction... Um, where they need to fix the roof. And in that case, yes, they want money because it's for a practical reason, but they're still obsessed with like getting money for to fix the roof. There's Fiddler on the, on the ropes with Pepe, the boxer. 
you know, Sophia's supposed to um, go to the bank to to deposit, like, money, and she ends up, you know, buying a prize fighter. Have yourself a very little Christmas. Um, they are obsessed with, well, Sophia is specifically obsessed with, you know, exchanging um, gifts. And they, instead of, like, buying each other gifts, they're going to just exchange one gift with each other. And the thing is, is that they're so obsessed with, you know, getting a good gift. They don't want Rose to buy them their present. Um, there's triple play where, you know, Sophia is getting money from the government, from the government. And then there's, where's Charlie? Sophia, she literally just pretends to be possessed by Charlie to get Rose to give her 20 bucks. And of course, Rose portrait of a woman where Sophia is obsessed with getting the TV. There's other countless examples, but I just find it fascinating that these women are obsessed with money. It's the 80s, so there's a connection, just like there's a connection between your brain and wallpaper paste. But yes, so that is my contribution. Um, thank you very much. Man, it would really be a good time if I could do a Reagan impression. <laughs> Don't look at me, all right? I'm I'm spent only these days. I was hoping. I was hoping. <laughs> no, I don't spend enough time watching video clips of Reagan. Fuck that guy. Um, but so <laughs> my favorite. So hobby. anyway, I, yeah, the, the social commentary of these two is amazing. And as you talked about, the juxtaposition of having <laughs> being like a twenty-something dude, and then like having watched already an example of these older grandmas talking about sex. I mean. I just, again, like you said, it's something that you sort of already knew, but we can't really understand about how much, like, social construction fucks with guys' brains, right? And there's, yeah. like, there's such a focus on, on you know, why feminism is important to women, and rightly so, but it's also so important to men because of this exact thing of just like we're all equal there's not like men are not allowed to express their feelings uh, other than anger or murdering people and it's just really um it's a really sick thing in our society and george really hits it on the head of like really doing some deep thinking about that you know yeah just being open the social construct of gender is so bad for society and i feel like we are finally sort of um embracing that at least you know pockets of of the population is pockets um, yes yes i was like I we're also that, going hard in the other end of right. like well know. i mean like cis hetero men are gonna be the last ones to be holding on to their gender expression as like i'm a man you know like yeah. i'm joe rogan that type of like <sighs> nonsense and i think that his point i mean that was just one part but his other point about like older people having sex which like we've talked about a lot and like yeah you know, it's gonna continue to come up as a theme like that's also something that i i particularly feel like when you're young you're like ew i know <laughs> but then know. like you get even just like a tiny bit older not even like necessarily the age of the golden girls but you're like oh like i'm however old i am and i'm actually like a full person with like a social life and a sex life and like a work life and like that i think you just have to get to a point where you realize that it's not just your age that has that and and i don't think you need to be like as old as the golden girls i think you just need to be like you know, I would say like around your late twenties, 
is yeah. when that happened, at least for me, of, like, being, like, oh, like, your social life doesn't die when you're 40. Actually, like, it gets much better. And, like, <laughs> right. you know, that's, like, the whole, the whole theme of watching a show about old women is, like, it keeps going. And you become more sure of yourself, at least most people, you know, at least in some regard. And so yeah. I think that, like, that was also a really interesting angle that he took. Yeah, and I think, you know, again, like you said, like, 40s or something, or late 20s, or I think it's really for me it sort of hits when you have that first sign that you're getting old (laughs) whether you're whether you can't you know you're too tired or whether you know your back starts hurting or whatever it is or probably for some people like losing hair or you know I mean like there's a lot of those like physical signs right right being yeah um so I think then you start being like oh wow okay I can fit into this category I mean not all of us can you know be a 12 year old uh wishing we were part of menopause but like you know it's yeah. really it's really interesting um you know to to reflect on that as a, as a young man so I think it's great <laughs> let's talk about Ronald Reagan <laughs> yeah let's my favorite um, the whole like you know even Sophia says the me 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 right like it's just it's so part of this show and so part of the show's political commentary. And yet there still are these things that again, like it never is expressed directly about sort of the obsession for money. And yes, it's a necessity, right? You got to make those bacon, lettuce and potato Um, and, you know, hustle. (laughs) And as he mentions, there's the whole episode about side hustles and, and just how important that is. But those excesses are just so endemic to the Reagan era um, even in ways like the show outwardly makes fun of it. And then it also has these subtleties that Chris outlined. Yeah. I never thought of grab that dough. Like he says, like grab that dough is always like a silly, fun, easy episode. For right. Me. Like I don't have to deeply think. And I don't think that, you know, observing their observing, their obsession with money necessarily removes that. But yeah, like Sophia is always trying to make money, which also makes sense from like the perspective of, coming to this country as an immigrant with no money and like working your way to like a you know semi-working class in Brooklyn and all of that um and yeah the point about excess and just like a uh there's no critiques of capitalism at all throughout this whole show you know like there's we talked to Debbie Macy about um how there's not really even critiques of Americanism necessarily and capitalism and Americanism I would argue you can't really separate and so they never they don't say capitalism in the Magda episode but they certainly fucking talk about it they're against communism it's so much like it's so intense it's amazing that's true that's true actually and they talk about like they also pair communism with fascism as like yes I feel like you could make the argument that that means that capitalism is automatically on top of those two. Like we yes, know that capitalism that's the implication, is the best, but here's the other two alternatives and both suck. That's absolutely um, the implication there for sure. Which is just also so reflective. I think of like the Reagan, George Bush, like, absolutely philosophy. Absolutely. And I think that the critique of capitalism as a mainstream thing is relatively new. Yeah. I mean, it's really unregulated. It's correct. Correct. I mean, again, and, and it's not the black and white thing, right. Where you're just like, Dorothy literally is like, communism doesn't work. And you're like, yeah, communism when taken over by fascists. Same as how right. capitalism is not, you know, it needs, it needs actual balances. You can't just be one direction or another. And it's, it's just really, uh, it's really fascinating how, again, like the show does so much to sort of fight that perspective in so many ways and make fun of Reagan and Bush. But then in other ways, you're just like, oh shit, this is just like, we literally have an entire episode that is an allegory 
for the era by Dorothy standing in a box grabbing money through the air. Yeah, it's the 80s, man. You know, I mean, like... It's just really hilarious. Holy shit. Oh, my God. All right. Well, moving on, we've got uh, two more social commentary observations and a commentary on sort of the show in general. So first, uh, you know, we're going to hear from uh, Barrett and Adit P. Uh, about, one, all the men cheating on this show. <laughs> and yeah. also, um, secondly, a submission that focuses on seeing older women as whole people, um, which is amazing. And then after that, our pal Carl is going to call out what is ironically perhaps the only consistency in the show, which is that there is no consistency <laughs> and no continuity, um, which, again, a, a lot of us have sort of picked up on and made fun of. But I think uh, it's just really interesting to see his take on it. So I want to discuss how male infidelity is normalized on this show as if it's something that every man does and women should just get over it. And it's OK. No big deal. As soon as the pilot aired, we're already getting this. Blanche is about to marry a man that it turns out is married to, what, five other women in various counties. Then in the next episode, we meet Stan's Bornek, who was on a business trip to Hawaii. They told the stewardess to give the passengers a lay. She got confused. And now they live on Maui. And again, it's kind of treated as if it's just something that everyone does. Even Sophia almost got cheated on with Sal when she was pregnant with Phil. So you're in the Great Depression. You have two kids, one on the way, and you're going to have an affair. And again, it's just like, oh, you know, whatever, big deal. And I just don't understand why it's treated like that. Like, why is that okay? And Rose, while Charlie didn't cheat on her, he came close when she thought that Blanche met him on a business trip and he was in bed with her, but then it was a double exposure. Can you believe that backstabbing slut? And not only did that happened to Blanche, but her husband, George, cheated on her and had a son with the woman and never mentioned any of it. Janet never knew, Rebecca never knew, Skippy, Biff, no one. And then Big Daddy also cheated on her mother and possibly Big Mommy. We don't know exactly how long he and Mammy Watkins were together, but this spanned decades. And I understand that certain people were not to mix in the South, but come on, Big Daddy. 40 years? I loved your father. And then we find that other music box, which implies that he cheated on Mammy Watkins. Big Daddy was a busy guy. So you're cheating on your wife. You're cheating on your mistress. Then you get married again, and you're on the road with some uh, band. Like, when do you even have the time? So again, this is kind of treated like it's not really that important. Dorothy then dates um, Glenn O'Brien twice. The first time he was still married. And again, it was kind of treated like, okay, well, you know, these things happen. Not a big deal. They're not in a good relationship. And it's never really seen as the problem that it is. And I'm wondering, is that because of the era in which these women grew up? Blanche clearly was not much of a uh, career woman, so to speak. Even after George died, all she was doing was working her fingers to the bone 12 hours a week at the museum. Now, she said she had the foresight to marry money, but clearly not because she couldn't even afford to fix her own roof or get a new toilet. So maybe she was very dependent, which many women were back then and even now, very dependent on the man to bring in the money. So you kind of feel stuck. You've got four to six kids, depending on, you know, what uh, plot lines you want to go with. And even though they have a governess, she still is dependent on George's income. So what's she going to do? Say, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I mean, she didn't know, granted, but had she known, I feel like she might have still stayed. Dorothy, I feel like she would have stayed because 
family left her. And she even tried to get married to him again a few years later. Sophia also stayed with um, Sal, despite what he did. And Rose, while she wasn't cheated on by Charlie, she was still pining for Miles, despite what he did. So it's like, okay, we have these great, strong feminist icons, these independent women, but this is their one area where it's a little iffy. And it comes down to that. And I think that, you know, in a certain era, which would have been, you know, the 40s, 50s, when they would have been married, the woman was expected to cook and clean all day in her heels and her pearls and have her husband's martini and slippers when he gets home. And if he doesn't slap her, then I guess it's a good day. And if he did, oh, well, he just had a hard day at the office. And it was kind of just accepted, which is really sad and unfortunate. But that's just how it was a lot of the times back then. So I guess they thought, okay, well, he's cheating, but he doesn't hit me or he doesn't do this, doesn't do that. And I just hate that that's kind of tarnished my viewpoint of them once I really started thinking about this, that, wow, they are so strong and independent, but they let their husbands and boyfriends cheat on them and they don't really seem to think much of it. They don't think enough of themselves to feel like they don't have to take that. Now, over time, they do develop more confidence, especially Dorothy. You know, she, um, you know, got Lucas and things like that. But overall, throughout the show, you see many times where they just learn to deal with it and accept it and move on. They're upset that episode and then, eh, big deal. And that's quite unfortunate. Take care, everybody. Hello, my name is Adit and I'm from Indonesia. Now, we didn't get the Golden Girls in Indonesia until cable TV was rather common in the past 20 years or so. Now, I started watching the Golden Girls about uh, more than 10 years ago when B. Arthur passed away. And I was, I was in middle school, I think. One of the things that resonated with me deeply was the fact that Golden Girls featured older women as part of the main ensemble. Because one thing that's bothered me with a lot of um, things in popular media and pop culture is that older women characters are not often featured as part of the main ensemble. They were always somebody, somebody, you know, there was somebody's parents, you know, relatives or neighbor. And, you know, to me, it doesn't really make much sense. Take into example, something as popular as the Adams family. Now, in Charles Adams's illustrations, all of the characters, you know, they were an ensemble characters. They had their own characteristics, you know. But in in the incarnations and feature iterations of the Adams family, I found that Grandmama Adams, one of my favorite characters, she wasn't even often featured in the posters, and her character characterization weren't even as strong as the other characters. And I think, you know, that's a shame. When, you know, if we look at the lore, you know, she's very important. Or take something as popular like um, Stranger Things, which was featured in the eight, 1980s, set in the 80s. And um, it's very popular. I enjoy watching it. But I do feel like it was missing the older women characters again. There were older women characters in, in the series, of course. But, you know, they were not very important characters. You know, sometimes they were just references to grandparents who were sick or, or characters who were dying, somebody who was weird. Nobody part of the main action. So that's why I like Golden Girls. You know, Golden Girls featured older women characters as part of the main ensemble. They were involved in the main action. You know, they, they, they were capable of doing things as much as anyone else. And, you know, I guess this is better with shows like, you know, uh, Grace and Frankie these days, you know. But, you know, this is something that's relatively recent. There's, a, there, there's, a, there's certainly a lot of ageism in pop culture and media. And Golden Girls, to me, really humanized 
older people and grandparents alike, you know, because I think, for example, when your grandma loses your grandpa or, you know, uh, your grandparent or whatever, we, we think, oh, yeah, it's just old people dying. But, you know, imagine someone losing your the love of your life that's been with you for 40, 50 years. I think that's that's very painful. And loss, grief, and heartbreak, they're all very human emotions that everybody feels. And, you know, the Golden Girl showed that with Sophia, with Dorothy um, Rose and Blanche, you know, Blanche, even though she was having a pedicure when her husband was dying. But, you know, it showed that they were experiencing things that anyone else could feel. They humanized grandparents for me. And um, one of the other things that really struck a chord with me with the Golden Girls was, you know, in addition to being part of the main ensemble and being part of the action, you know, they were still kind of, you know, doing like their societal role, you know, in, in a matter of speaking, as grandmothers, as older women, as what care, caretakers of society that, that and their contribution is very, um, is, is very precious. You know, they have resources that they can use, their wisdom, their insight and experience, as Rose said in the age discrimination episode, that's very useful for our society and, I came to think about this when I was watching Mary Had a Little Lamb, the episode. And Mary said she always liked Sophia's bedroom. She always went there when her mother was in the hospital before she was uh, before she died. And I think of all the young people that the Golden Girls raised, so to speak, their neighbors, you know, their grandkids, Blanche's niece, Blanche's grandson, you know, people like that. And I started to feel like, you know, that the Golden Girls were my own grandmothers or my own neighbors or something. You know, unless you were Rufus Wainwright and B. Arthur told you that, you know, I'm not your fucking grandmother. But, um, you know, the Golden Girls showed that you can be a part of a marginal community, part, marginal member of the community, but you can still have significant contributions to society. That really resonated with me. You know, I'm, I'm disabled, I'm queer. But watching the Golden Girls sort of affirmed me in that, in the sense that I can still contribute to society without being the represent, represent, representation of somebody who, you know, who can do that, somebody who's young and able and viral or whatever. The Golden Girls really humanized the human experience for me and that we all have our roles in society and that we're all very important and we're all valid. So this is, my name's Carl, I'm card trader by day on Twitter. Um, we had talked about Blanche and her inconsistencies with homosexuality. Um, but I also wanted to talk about, and it's funny for a show, I love this much. You can still nitpick and complain. And my biggest issue maybe ever with the show is the continuity. There's simply no continuity outside of the main characters. Um, the biggest faux pas maybe of the entire series is the age of Dorothy's children. Now, Dorothy got knocked up by Stan, you know, I believe, what, senior prom? Something like that. So they were 18. They were married for 38 years. And then the beginning of the series, even by the first or second season, um, they kind of just, the girls have talked about how they've been together five years. So they've been roomies for a long time. So this would place Michael, Michael bare minimum should be like 40 years old, maybe mid-40s. And then when he visits Miami for the first time and sleeps with Rose's daughter, um, he's only 29. Um, and, you know, um, um, Dorothy complains that he's not doing anything with his life, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he shows up in later episodes again. But then um, he's 29, but then a couple seasons past that, 
there's the episode called Mixed Blessings, where, you know, they tackle the issue of, you know, mixed race relations, and he's engaged to be married to Lorraine. Now, Lorraine is supposed to be 49 or 50 years old, and Dorothy says, oh my God, Michael, she's twice your age. That means he's under 25? I don't understand, like, how can that even possibly be? Um, now, granted, they took liberty in the fact that they were still saying these women were in their 50s, quote unquote, or late 50s, when in real life, um, B. Arthur, Betty White were already 63 when the series began. I think Estelle Getty was right behind them at 62, and Rue McClanahan was 51, 52. I get it. You know, Golden Girls is not Ozark or one of these shows where, you know, every single pertinent detail matters. It's a comedy. They, they mouth off to each other. Sophia calls everyone a slut puppy. I mean, it's fantastic, but just, I mean, there's no continuity. It's like from episode to episode, you know, they'll have a boyfriend and then, you know, oh, I've been seeing so-and-so for some time. And then the next episode, it's like they never, ever, ever existed. And I realize in a half hour formulaic situational sitcom once a week, you can't have an entire storyline for every character and have it last, you know, a season long. But, oh, my God, <laughs> just in and out, in and out. Uh, the biggest thing for me, Dorothy's father, Sid Melton, the character actor, um, every episode comes back in flashbacks or even in Sophia's some sort of afterlife. And yet he plays the waiter in the medieval restaurant when Dorothy has the date with Hal Linden to rehash about why he didn't show up for her date for the senior prom. Wow. Okay. So I want to actually sort of start from the top there. So Barrett's submission was so uh, thought provoking for me because I guess like I am aware, obviously I'm aware of all of those storylines, but I have never considered them all together. Right. And I think his point about like, why did they accept it? Um, even Dorothy, who obviously eventually does leave Stan, she lived with, you know, an adulterer for decades and she knew, she obviously knew, she knew. most of the time. Um, and I think his point about you know women were sort of taught like that's just part of life like I think that's very true and the piece of media that I thought of um is Mad Men because you know that's about the 60s and all of the wives just accept that the husbands when they're staying in the city or you know whatever like just such a different kind of life to just like it's something you have to live with you know like that's sort of the theme of um I feel like a lot of like suburban housewives who are, you know, American dreaming, they're, they're Rose yep. Islanding, you know, like, but it's just like, that's part of it. You can't expect a man to be faithful. But I also think that part of that is the fact, again, why feminism is so important and why equal rights are so important. Because at that time, you couldn't divorce your husband based on that. You couldn't, you know, like fucking marital right. rape was like legal. I mean, there's, there's still places where it is, is it's still legal. Yeah. And it's just like, there are no rights for the woman on her own. So she has to be in this marriage and she has to accept that that's part of it. Because, you know, I mean, whether or not she actually knows it's like actually wrong and she shouldn't stand for it, but she's trapped or whether it's just like, that's the way it is. And it's a story you tell yourself to sort of get by in life is really, I mean, it's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I think when, you know, when <laughs> I laughed so hard at the, I loved your father. When do you even have the time? <laughs> Um, 
we uh my 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 husband laughs all the time because we were talking about like especially early on in our relationship about like cheating and all that kind of stuff and he's like i don't when does when does when do people have time to cheat like seriously i'm exhausted like trying to manage one relationship in regular life like who does this anyway um but i think it's fascinating where he talks about like literally the first two episodes are are centered around infidelity in that way and it fascinated me because to your point i never thought about them all together in one big narrative yeah and i wonder if that is something that um time has changed a little bit in terms of the uh relatability because i feel like the target audience at the time at least like you know beyond as we we always say like it, it was just america but like the people who were watching the show seeing themselves I imagine a lot of them had experienced something like infidelity, like something on the spectrum of infidelity. And so like, I feel like that's also sort of a commentary of the time as well. Like, I think that it, it seems so, um, it seems a little bit egregious now, you know, hearing all of these husbands and all of these men who have, who have cheated. But I bet at the time it was just kind of like, it wasn't so foreign. Right. Right. I mean, and that, (laughs) <laughs> to to tie into our second clip here i mean that is humanizing right in mm-hmm. its own way of like if you're relating to that and you can have identification with you know with these women going through this that really humanizes your experience and i think for people like us who look at it from our perspective being like don't stand for that that's so wild that it's normalized um the the humanization comes from like our viewing of it now and like cheering on essentially the female characters being like you know you're better than this <laughs> like, yeah. basically basically saying like what barrett said is like why do you stand for that why do you need feel the need to accept this um but yeah i just i i loved adit's clip of, of just um relating it to the adams family yeah you know? i love and, grandma adams, adams. <laughs> i love yeah. her so much and just like ageism in the media and when you know old people die on tv and it's it's really it gets to the heart of I think what the original intent was for the Golden Girls in a lot of ways of just that portrayal and throughout the entire series every single season they really make a point you know often comically but also like very pointedly to weave in you know just like grandparent-esque themes that would never be able to be woven into any other sitcom at the time right and again as we've talked about forever like that's the golden girls is why we have grace and frankie the golden girls is why we have a newer sex in the city you know like revival of older women and hot in cleveland and that's why we have all of these shows with older women and older people being able to just be them true their true selves because this this show did it first yeah actually addy's clip was um kind of brought me somewhere that I feel like I, I actually haven't an observation I hadn't made uh, or at least I hadn't verbalized but when he talked about um, humanizing grandparents and the loss you know like I feel like when somebody's older or you know like I would say like elderly like 80s 90s whatever your definition of elderly is yeah like, I feel like when they experience a loss of like a spouse um, or a friend or something on TV and even like when you hear about it in life there is I feel like it is my natural reaction obviously it's very sad but it's also you're a little bit like okay well you know they lived a good life or like you kind of have to make yourself feel better about find a way to make that loss feel less intense because otherwise like you know older people are often surrounded by that type of 
of loss and death. And um, I think that it's easy to be like, oh, well, you know, like they had like 50 wonderful years together or whatever it is, like a way to make that seem less um, painful. And I think his point about like, no, it's still really, it's universally dreadful when you lose a spouse. But there's just such an impulse to make it seem lighter or not as bad as if you were younger, but that's just us trying to protect ourselves, I think. Totally, totally. You know, having to, like you said, lessen lessen the burden, you know, yeah. when you're in that that um, space is, is really important. And that's sort of, I mean, again, going back to Barrett's piece of like lessening the burden of having to like cope with your husband's infidelity as like a fact of life is, you know, might be just a way to be like, that's how men are, right? And that's right. just, that's a coping mechanism. Same thing. Um, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and and on the lighter side of things, I think, you know, Carl doing the math of Dorothy and Stan's yeah. relationship is something we, you know, a lot of people have either directly or indirectly picked up on of like, how old is Michael? Right. <laughs> I know the guy? Michael math is so good. Michael the math. Michael math. Michael math. <laughs> yes. Let's start that hashtag. I love it. Oh, my God. Um but, you know, I think the the other point that's really interesting, and, and we've pointed this out before, as have many others, is that, you know, this show was never meant to be watched altogether like this, right? right? Like, that's just like, you you had a week between each of the airings, and that if you were lucky, uh, you know, you would sort of put those things together week to week, but like, certainly not year to year. And it didn't really matter. That's just not how things were written. And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, I like that actor. Bring him back. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't like that actor. Let's have another one. You know, I mean, there's the, all of that kind of continuity stuff is really funny, too. But it is just remarkable how, like, shows would are, are never able to get away with things like that. <laughs> no, <laughs> these yeah. Days because this is how we watch things, you know. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, I, also, I mean, the Golden Girls definitely took some liberties beyond what I think we correct. Even yeah, beyond the norm, the 80s and 90s would allow. But you're right, um, you're right. But I think that was kind of also part of like TV at the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, <laughs> it's uh, anyway. Michael Math hashtag Michael Math is really fascinating. So thank yeah. you, Carl, for bringing that to us. <laughs> oh man! All right. Well, actually, so moving into our next block, which. Um, focuses on deep character analysis. Uh, The first clip actually highlights Rose's naivete as she navigates one of the most egregious lack of continuity stories um, (laughs) throughout the whole series, I would say. (laughs) Ah, the cheese man. Yes, absolutely. I mean, good old, good old Miles makes no sense. (laughs) Nicholas. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, yeah, and then after, after Kristen's clip uh, there about that amazing scene in Witness, um, we've got two submissions that really dive into Blanche's self-absorption and, sort of her relationships to her own emotions and how she helps Dorothy and and everyone else to discover and appreciate their own sexuality. So, um, you know, Noelle M and Susan Q with some delightful, delightful quips as well as uh, in terms of phrase, as well as accents, um, really delve into that. (laughs) And then um, (laughs) lastly, this block is going to end with our resident Phyllis Hamero, Avery, taking a look at the girls' involvement with the arts and how, um, you know, what that says about each of their different kinds of intelligence. My favorite episode, and I know it's not popular, is Witness with the crossover with Barbara and the Cheese Man. I just adore the scene where Barbara arrests him, I think mostly because Rose is surprised that 
Barbara lies to the cheese man and she says, it's okay to lie to a bad guy. And Rose thinks that Barbara was told specifically in her police training that she can lie to a bad guy. I mean, that's just like, that just cracks me up. Any of the crossovers with Barbara and Carol, the, the Midnight Man, the Moonlight Madness, with both of them, I think are just great. You know, I wish we'd gotten more of those, but I just think that, like, that line of where I was thinking that cops are specifically taught that in the academy, that they're allowed to lie to a bad guy. It just, I think it's just like an example of Ro the way Rose thinks about things. And then she probably thinks that cops never lie because she just believes that everyone is good and that they are given special permission if they're lying to a bad guy. You know, I just, like, that's just, I don't know why it makes me laugh at every single time. You know, I know the continuity of, you know, Miles being witness protection. There's a lot of issues with that, and I'm not denying that, but I just think, like, all of that continuity stuff is kind of balanced out by that one scene, if that makes sense. I'll be talking about Season 5, Episode 11, Ebb Tide, Big Daddy's death and Blanche's grieving process, and the iconic scene that ultimately culminates at her parents' grave. Like many of her A-plot episodes, Blanche's character flaws have been explored time and time again. Vanity, selfishness, insensitivity, stubbornness, and an almost delusional mindset when it comes to her stunning good looks being integral to her identity. They are Blanche Devereaux. Her self-absorption is ultimately what leads her to not go to Big Daddy when he calls for her, and he dies without seeing her one last time. Her stage of almost delusional denial over the reality that Big Daddy is really dead is brief, and it is a simple, ridiculous anecdote about Big Daddy eating lima beans and ketchup that breaks her. He always made everything sound so damn special. It's heartbreaking and expertly and realistically delivered by Rue McClanahan. Blanche eventually breaks down into tears at the kitchen table, leading to all the other girls who have already lost their fathers to rush to comfort her, because they may not be blood, but they are family. We've heard across all the seasons the flowery, long-winded, southern reference-heavy, and often mildly offensive stories about Big Daddy's mint julep-flavored shenanigans. You start a fire from the bottom. They're admitting who to my country club. The tradition of tall tales and tall drinks continues on through Blanche, much like how Rose has St. Olaf and Sophia has Sicily stories. It's vital to her character identity and her memories of her life before meeting the girls, and something that brings them together with hilarious results. Blanche has a lot of guilt and regret over this, much like how she has a hard time living with the fact she and her own children are distant. But when confronted before the funeral by her sister Virginia, she doubles down, as is her defense mechanism, and instead gets angry. And it's her angry deflection of blame onto Virginia and her own stubbornness and yet unacknowledged shame that makes her miss the whole funeral. Much like George, Blanche has that damn southern pride, except it's never stopped her from being a dancer. It did stop her from going to see Big Daddy, but sets up one of the most emotional scenes in the series where Blanche directly addresses her parents in the cemetery. While we don't get much focus on Blanche's mother, aside from the Mother's Day vignette, which is kind of a bummer, we get two full episodes focused on Big Daddy. During the former... 
Curtis himself reflects on Elizabeth and also points out that her beautiful physical traits are something Blanche inherited from her. This iconic scene in the cemetery where Blanche believes she's alone and free to honestly verbalize how she's feeling about her father's death and her own emotions and misgivings by talking to him shows Blanche at her most vulnerable. She owns up to her self-centeredness, how she was a horrible, rebellious child who made it hard on her parents with her antics, but that he always made her feel loved and beautiful. Despite everything, no matter what she looked like, he was her little girl. She admits to feeling like a fool and willing to give up anything to have another moment with him, to show him the love she has for him, rather than simply one-sidedly accepting the love he had for her, the bargaining stage of grief. When she notices Dorothy, the momentary disembodied voice of Big Daddy, she does put on her polite southern air again, until the moment where she hesitates and says, I'm nobody's little girl anymore. Blanche says this mournfully to Dorothy, and also to herself, almost as if fully realizing it in the moment, and the gravity of what that means to her, entering the depression stage. She's no longer the valued, special, and beloved daughter that made her father proud. There's seemingly no one else who will love her unconditionally, flaws and all, and this loss shatters a piece of her identity and sense of security. She's now lost both of her parents and George. As a soon-to-be 30-year-old, born to parents in their 50s and 40s respectively, I spent so much of my life from 12 on obsessively bossing the Golden Girls with my mom, who suffered from multiple sclerosis. Even as a young kid, it hit me right in the chest when I saw this scene for the first time, because I knew it was an omen of things to come in my life. That one day, sooner than anyone would want, and sooner than the vast majority of my peers, I would be in Blanche's position too. No longer anyone's little girl. It wasn't lost on me when the first half of this lasting sentiment came true. This scene was actually one of the first things I thought of when my mom died when I was 21. As my father just turned 80 this year, it is a creeping, inescapable reality that will come true entirely. It's a thought that scares me that nothing I can do can possibly prevent. You just have to accept it, and seeing it depicted in the warm blanket of the Golden Girls by strong, hilarious women is comforting. I think it shows that for so many people, regardless of how old they get, they desperately cling to the security that having a living parent provides, having an unconditional source of love, and the overwhelming grief that arises when not only one parent has died, but both. They're our first and among the most meaningful relationships we'll have in our lifetime, and up until that moment, we've never lived life without them. It makes finding family and friends all the more important and highlights just how these four ladies were a match that is still so beloved 40 years later. I'm Susan Quilty, and this is a quick scholarly take on how Blanche Devereaux teaches us to be more comfortable with our sexuality. In the Golden Girls series finale, Dorothy tells Lucas how much she learned from life with the girls. Sophia taught her life doesn't end at a certain age. Rose taught her to tie a square knot, and Blanche helped her become more comfortable with her sexuality. That line always hits a little funny for me, given that Blanche spends a lot of time putting down other women's sex appeal and putting down Dorothy in particular. Clearly, Blanche sees herself as the queen of sex, and during the series run, she does try to pass on her expertise. She teaches Dorothy how to drive a man wild by blowing in his ear, and she transforms Sophia from an 84-year-old woman into a 65-year-old drag queen. Yet her direct attempts frequently include bad advice, like teaching Rose to withhold sex and playfully tweak Miles' nose, which nobody likes. Better lessons about sexuality come through when Blanche isn't trying to be a teacher. One of the best is when she takes Dorothy to the rusty anchor. 
Blanche doesn't expect Dorothy to tap into her own sex appeal while singing to the crowd. And when that happens, she has to fight through her own jealousy to admit how beautiful Dorothy becomes when she sings. That's something we see often. Blanche's overt sexuality is intertwined with her jealousy. She needs to be the most attractive at all times. Blanche competes with Sophia over dating Fidel Santiago, and she has a meltdown when she isn't the prettiest at her sorority reunion. When she learns that Rose had 56 boyfriends in high school, she calls Rose a slut. And when Dorothy agrees, calling Rose the easiest woman in the room, Blanche angrily tells Dorothy to take that back. She simultaneously tries to slut shame Rose while claiming the grand poobah of slutdom title for herself. And that's where Blanche and the overall show itself are both a product of the times. Despite Blanche being proud of her sexual prowess, she's quick to demean others for theirs and even downplays her own experience if it better suits her. In her dream conversation with George, she defines many, many men as two. When her sister Charmaine talks about signing everyone's school yearbooks with, you were the first, Blanche says she not only wrote that, but had a stamp made. So how does Blanche teach Dorothy to be more confident about her sexuality? Well, Blanche is a good reflection of our society. Despite a desire to be sex positive, she's tripped up by social mores and stumbles over ideas of sexual competitiveness, jealousy, and shame. Yet still, relentlessly bringing up the subject of sex forces others to confront the topic and grow from their own reflections. Even 30 years from the show's run, our society is still teetering between sex positivity and slut-shaming. Yet there has been progress, and I think some of that is owed to the conversations raised by the Golden Girls and Blanche Devereaux. Hello, Enough Wicker, Avery here. The theater is a really big part of my life, so I always love watching episodes of the Golden Girls that focus on the theater. And so what I want to do is put a lot of the theater scenes we see throughout the show in conversation with how Blanche, Rose, and Dorothy are characterized by each other and how the show characterizes them. And then I'm going to focus on the audition scene with Patrick Vaughn specifically to see how the show and the girls do that. I'm not going to talk about Henny Penny, though, because while it is one of the only other times we get all three girls acting together, they're essentially acting as themselves, but as birds. So it doesn't offer us an opportunity to see how the girls engage with literary analysis or the dramatic interpretation of texts. We are clearly supposed to see Dorothy as the only literary literary character of the girls, right? She's the one who went to college. And even though she got her degree in American history, she became a teacher, an English teacher at that. She uh, corrects people's grammar. She likes to read. It's the butt of many jokes, right? Uh, and she certainly sees herself as the literary figure of the group, right? Um, and she even seeks out that friendship with Barbara Thorndike because she wants to be intellectually stimulated in a way that she thinks Blanche and Rose cannot stimulate her. The show, though, sees the girls somewhat differently, right? The show presents the other girls as having some kind of literary and artistic merit that Dorothy is not catching. So we see Blanche and Rose doing theater a lot more than we see Dorothy do it. Blanche and Rose both do The Sound of Music, they do Cats, they do Macbeth together. Um, and the show presents Rose as stupid through the girls' kind of presentation of her, and of course through like <laughs> Rose being Rose. 
But it also presents her as having artistic and literary merit because she gets the role of Lady Macbeth over Blanche, which means that a theater director or casting agent saw in her the potential to play that role. Right. So she's got some kind of acting merit from that. She also has a performance ability and background through um, the fact that she plays piano and she writes music, which you do to perform for people, even if it's small groups. And then she also has a really good understanding of verse and rhyme because she writes children's story. So we're seeing the show kind of present Rose as somebody with all of these skills that Dorothy prides herself in. Likewise, the show does the same thing for Blanche in many ways. We see her do theater more than anybody else. She does some shows by herself, like Taming of the Shrew. And she clearly appreciates literature. She reveres Mr. William Shakespeare. And she tries to write her own novel in the tradition of all the other great Southern writers, right? And she reads all the time. And we might actually see her reading on screen more than we see Dorothy reading on screen. Now, of course, Blanche is reading romance novels, which kind of fits into her character as somebody who's very romantic and sexual. But it's still reading. And... The only thing I will say is that while the, she does go back and get her degree, the show doesn't use that to intellectualize her in the same way that it does for Dorothy, right? Where her degree is kind of what makes her intellectual. Blanche doesn't get this treatment from the show, which I think is interesting. And nevertheless, the show still presents Blanche as having some literary merit, um, despite her degree not being kind of part of that. And we see this play out in the Patrick Vaughn audition scene. So we don't get to see Rose act in this scene, which is sad. But I think that happens because it would kind of be redundant to get that delivery of that scene three times in a row. Um, but when Dorothy delivers this scene, she's very stationary, right? And she's honed in on the audience, and then she's honed in on Biff. Um, and the line she delivers is, I want you to take me, Biff, which through her delivery is very literal. It's very much the text. We see Dorothy offering the line, I want you to take me, Biff, is her saying, or her character saying, I want to run away with you. But we know that Dorothy is thinking of this line as innuendo, right? Because after that, she says, right here on the stage, which shows us that Dorothy is thinking about Patrick Vaughn and her desire for Patrick Vaughn uh, and not Biff. And that kind of recolors how we kind of view Dorothy, Dorothy's interpretation of the text, right? It's kind of poised as it being paramount, but really she's thinking about something else. Blanche, likewise, is very much honed in on Patrick Vaughn and her sexual desire for him, but she delivers the scene differently that it lines up with that and it lines up the character's desire for him as well. So Blanche is very dynamic. She's mobile. She commands the space and she uses more of it than Dorothy, but she's still connected to her, to her acting partner. And then when she does deliver the line, I want you to take me Biff, she delivers it with that innuendo. And you know that when Blanche is saying that her character means I want to run away with you and I want to have sex with you. Now, of course, this fits in with her characterization as someone who's very sexual and flirty. And it fits in with the gag of her bosoms having more pressure than Dorothy's rear tires but it's still a deeper analysis and delivery of the line than what Dorothy provides, even if Dorothy's kind of thinking of the same joke as Blanche. So what we're seeing is the show present Blanche and Rose's characters with just as much literary and artistic merit as Dorothy, even if Dorothy and the other girls don't see it this way. This was so fun. Thank you so much. Bye. Yes, Avery, that was fun. <laughs> wow, Guy Corbin. Really getting that Guy Corbin. <laughs> Listen, earlier I said that I only do spend, but I thought I had to, you know, bring <laughs> bring out another accent. <laughs> yeah, I think that was great. Why don't you tell them all about it right now? <laughs> well, this oh, this man. block is one of my favorites. I mean, obviously, deep character analysis is like bread and butter of, uh, you know, enough wicker and just sort of a scholarly take. But um, let's, I mean, let's start from the top here. We, we have so much to talk about in this one. So Kristen talking about the hilarious scene of witness and just, 
everything about it. it's just like such a joyous description of a scene yeah. and this is like our our one submission that really focused on a one single scene which i love and it's just it's incredible about uh all of the nuances and like rose believing everyone's good and like cops are to be trusted and, and you know just like forgiving her naivete but lying to a bad guy and just uh everything about it and especially that it brings in like you know the whole empty nest crew is is really fascinating i just i thought it was such um it was just such a joy yeah yeah and i like Kristen. um you know she talked about how she loves this episode so much and like you know the crossovers are such a different kind of golden girls episode and i like yeah. them too i think they're so funny um and obviously everybody who submitted to this contest was in some way expressing their love and appreciation for the show even if it was through criticism um right. but i think it is nice to have a clip that's just purely celebrating <laughs> a very very funny scene um yes. And yeah, I, I, I really enjoy that one. And yeah, and like, you know, we said, we, we talked about connecting it to continuity and how she essentially like forgives it, right? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. It kind of goes back to um, at the, you know, the beginning of our episode when Golden Girls 85 said, the farcical storyline remains taught. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was great. And it's so related to this one. For but, sure. um, oh man. So, all right, let's talk about noelle's clip oh my goodness so there's i mean let's let's talk about three three of my favorite quotes like right off the bat like all the other girls who have already lost their fathers like seeing it depicted in the warm blanket of the golden girls big daddy's mint julep flavored shenanigans (laughs) yeah (laughs) holy shit (laughs) i think i mean again you're you know we touched on this earlier talking about you know blanche and coping with grief but like her delusion in mm-hmm. grief is fascinating and to be called out so directly on that is really amazing to me yeah and i think when you listen to this one um in uh you know after hearing tj west clip it's really interesting because being so self-absorbed or so selfish and being confronted with grief i think is really interesting because she can't really like her vanity or her self-obsession or whatever it is can't really combat the huge emotions of grief and it's one of the only things I think that where she finds herself like being unwilling to put her pride first and I think that's really scary to somebody who kind of shies away from not being in control of how they present themselves to the world you know and I, I feel like this clip really hits on that um and even, you know, like, the flaws in who Big Daddy was and Blanche's, like, her relationship with Big Daddy as a person and not as her father, I think is yes. also really interesting. And, like, you know, we've all kind of established that Big Daddy was probably, like, a really, really terrible bigoted human. <laughs> but, yes. you know, like, Blanche can't help but love him and, like, you know, I think that that also is a little bit more relatable, too, in the era of Trump and, like, people having to navigate like do I want to have a relationship with the person that I've that is my family when they're out here you know thumping for or whatever it is and like yeah 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 how do you confront that I think obviously this is a little bit watered down and and Big Daddy's dead which I think makes it a little bit easier and all that but like I do I think there's some roots there yeah but I mean they also a lot of this show does talk about wrestling with 
you know, people who are already dead many years later, right? Mm-hmm. And like finding out new information about them. Like, you know, even Blanche with her her own husband fathering someone, you know, uh with with another woman. I I mean there's there's just like a lot that you have to take in. And it's it's just yeah, it's amazing to have I just love how she talks about Blanche's reaction to it all, um, based mm-hmm. on the person that she is. So good. After I'm dead, drop me a line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god so speaking of blanche again you know let's let's talk about susan q's i mean blanche teetering between sex positivity and sluts shaming herself is is incredible and obviously yeah. we all know like that she really picks on dorothy a lot but i loved her point about how like better lessons about sexuality come when blanche isn't trying to teach it yeah, totally. I think that also, like, that following Noelle's clip about Blanche's self-absorption and Blanche's, like, um, her insistence that she portray herself to the world in a way that she wants to be portrayed, I think this is really, like, there's a positive and a negative to that. And the positive is that, like, she becomes so comfortable with her sexuality a lot of the time until there's something that's a little bit thrown off or something that's like yeah. not quite how she wants it to be. Um, yeah. Like doesn't that, match her conception of herself. Exactly. And I think that also Susan's point about like societally, we say that we're sex positive or, you know, like a lot of us gravitate towards that way, but actually like we're not, we're only sex positive within the circle of acceptance that we have defined for ourselves. Yep. And so I think that that also relates to um, when we talked to Elliot Powell about, yes. um, you know, like the, what was it called? The circle. The charm of, circle. The charm circle. Yes. And like how certain behaviors are acceptable as long as these other societal mores are not violated. <laughs> oh my God. It's so great. And I love that you talked about the charm circle and Elliot Powell because so that's, um, that's from Gail Rubin's essay, Thinking Sex, um, which is a foundational essay in sexuality studies, but Ellie Powell like brought it to us, you know, in terms of our knowledge. And I think that that is worth digging into both like, you know, our um, post with uh, Ellie Powell on Enough Wicker, but also just Gail Rubin's essay in general. It's uh, the charm circle is exactly what I was thinking of here of how, like you said, we say we're cool with it all. Yeah. (laughs) But, But what, like it has to actually be within this invisible construct. And that's, so much about sex and even just life in general is what we have to deconstruct is all like the invisible scripts and structures around us. Like everything that I personally had to deconstruct about misogyny and racism and, you know, like bigotry and and capitalism and Americanism and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And obviously sexuality uh, being raised Catholic and a woman in America. Um, (laughs) It's like, that all is that's all the invisible stuff you are programmed to think in the same way that you know george was programmed to think like a man and can't talk about sex and emotion etc in that way uh you have to really unpack that and you you have to have an awareness of it first that you it might not exactly match up with your expectations which i think blanche goes through almost every time she has some sort of like romantic or sexual incident right or like it happens a lot around her aging of just like ooh, like that like what i think about my life isn't matching up so i'm experiencing some sort of strain and then there has to be some sort of questioning of like the assumptions i guess right totally totally yeah yeah. 
Um, and speaking of assumptions, yeah, let's talk about yeah. What a great what a great transition. That was totally natural. Um, the Avery's clip. Oh my god, an amazing dichotomy I've never thought of before. Like artistic and literary merit. Like holy crap. Like it, Rose having this affinity for music and performance and being a very specific type of intelligence. And obviously, we know that like Rose is presented in the show of like having you know like some in some cases the best grounding of like what to do and how to approach life and like is you would argue like the happiest <laughs> in a lot of ways but like to to think of that as intelligence is is such a different take on what we usually see presented and I thought it was incredible and Avery's point about Dorothy who uh Dorothy is somebody who appreciates the arts particularly with like how sort of um worshipy she gets about barbara thorndyke yes you know just like she is somebody who like she auditions for the play she is part of she was part of the um until the two merry widows took off like she was part of the dancing you know (laughs) she was she's in it but she her lack of um appreciation for rose's talent and even blanche's talent too i would say is a character flaw of Dorothy's that I had not considered before. Yes. Um, but I also think folds into Dorothy's born act well. Like, I believe that. I believe that she's so blinded by her own value of what she deems as intelligent that she's unable to consider, like, the arts as another form of intelligence, which I don't mean to say as, like, a dig. I just think it's very realistic. I think, you know, a lot of... Yes. I think we all often find ourselves like only able to value a kind of intelligence that we have, or at least like not recognize all different kinds of intelligence. And so I thought that Avery's point about arts as a form of intellect is really, um, is really powerful. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it's really related to like highbrow, lowbrow stuff, right? Right. Where you're just like, oh, I'm really smart about, uh, I don't know, baseball statistics. And people are like, well, that doesn't count. And you're like, why? I, like, yeah. I can memorize numbers. Like, what does it matter if it's trigonometry? You know, like, I can have a certain application. It could also just be a hobby. It doesn't have to have, you know, there's all this, like, worth uh, conversation with, you know, right. especially with capitalism of, like, oh, it has to, like, like, like to your point, like Dorothy would probably argue of like, well, what's the practical value of that for society? And you're like, get the fuck out of here. It's yeah, not all about, <laughs> yeah, this like Puritanism thing, you know, and relatedly, it's so funny. I had to, um, this is the state of the American public school system circa the 80s and 90s. Um, I remember every year having to write letters in art and music class to the Board of Education so that they wouldn't cancel those classes every year we had they made the kids write letters to be like please don't cancel the budget i love this and you're like that's really fucked up (laughs) don't you remember um vh1 save the music like an entire organization dedicated to not canceling music programs in school because they were always the first thing cancel trigonometry the fuck i mean jesus oh my god replace it with learning about your taxes and how like you know like we only have complicated taxes because of lobbyists from Asian R block. Anyway, getting away from this. Here. But <laughs> I I really appreciated this take. I think, you know, we talk about the the love of that community theater all the time on Enough Wicker, but we never have couched it in this way. And I, you know, we have Avery to thank for that. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna channel my guy Corbin again. We have one more clip left, so why don't you tell them all about it right now? I will, guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
man, I, I'm I'm bad. I break. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we have one really really cool clip left. Um, take us out. We have Louisa doing a live tarot draw from the Golden Girls Tarot deck, which is so cool. I really recommend. You know, a fan must have this in their um, their repertoire of Golden Girls products. Um, so go ahead, Louisa. Hi, Lauren and Sarah. My name is Louisa from Vancouver, Canada, and this is my entry for the Enough Wicker podcast contest. I'm combining two things that I adore, the Golden Girls and the tarot cards. A fully illustrated Golden Girls tarot deck came out in 2018, created by Chantel D'Souza and published by Smith Street Gifts. Tarot is well known in the mainstream as related to fortune telling, but personally I use the cards for introspection, self-reflection, and analysis. Psychoanalyst Carl Jung described tarot as representing the archetypes of mankind. As a fan of your podcast, I think this theme is fitting since you've both spoken about archetypes and tropes in many Golden Girls episodes. For my entry, I will shuffle the Golden Girls deck, pull a card, and discuss the scene or episode of that card in relation to the card's tarot meaning. For the sake of time, I've shuffled the cards already, so now I'm just going to pull one card. Okay, so the card I pulled is Four of Cups. The episode this card depicts is from Season 2, Episode 15, Before and After, where Rose has a near-death experience, starts eating life, and moves out when the other girls can't stand her new lifestyle. In this card, the scene is Rose sitting down on the couch, clutching her pillow sadly. This scene occurs after Dorothy and Blanche visit Rose and all three pretend that they're doing just fine without each other. There are three cups on the table and a fourth cup is being offered to Rose, but she's too upset to notice it. In the tarot, the four of cups is about opportunities being presented to you at a time when you may feel dissatisfied or bored with your life. At this point in the episode, Rose has lost touch with her beach friends and her new roommates aren't interested in becoming her friends. So when she tells Dorothy and Blanche how happy she is after moving out, once they leave, Rose realizes just how unhappy she is with her new lifestyle. It's fitting how this scene of Rose alone in her new apartment is the representation of the Four of Cups in the Golden Girls tarot deck. Whether through embarrassment or pride or both, Rose is choosing to ignore the symbolic cup that is offered to her, which represents Dorothy and Blanche's surprise visit. That would have been Rose... Rose's opportunity to admit that she wants to move back with them. The three cups on the table could be viewed as Dorothy, Blanche, and Sophia, while Rose is the lone fourth cup, isolated from the rest of the group. Of course, we know that by the end of the episode, Rose moves back in. So Rose heeded the message of the four of cups by taking the fourth cup offered to her by asking the girls if they'll let her come back. And of course they do. It's absolutely fascinating to analyze this scene from the perspective of tarot, and I hope you enjoyed listening to my contest entry as much as I enjoy listening to your episodes. Thank you for being a friend, Lauren and Sarah. Thank you for being a friend, Louisa. Woohoo! <laughs> that was amazing. I, I mean, I am only like vaguely familiar with tarot from friends that are really into it, but... Um, this deck and the way she reads before and after uh, and how, I mean, how it's like very specifically chosen, you know, in terms of how well this deck is put together as you, you know, to your point, it's uh, belongs in every golden girls fans arsenal. And we're not even getting any cut from, for saying that we're just, no. we're just big fans. 
No, that's what it is. It is really cool because also like I have had tarot decks in the past. Um, and yeah, I have, how are, I are have, you like, would you say you're into them? Like, do you know how to read them? I've been in and out. So I did at one point I did know how to read them. I had a book that I would have to reference. I was never as good as like Louisa, but I could, I was very into them for a time. I've kind of faded a little bit, but only because of just like time passing. I do have two cards that I always like, I have in my nightstand that I feel like a strong attachment to. So I guess you could oh, say really? I'm like, yeah, I'm like on the, you know, I'm a, I dabble. Um, <laughs> I dabble. <laughs> I think her description of how thoughtful the um, episodes assigned to the illustrations is so yes. cool because I have obviously looked at the, the Golden Girls Tower deck, but I didn't put that together at all. And I certainly didn't approach it with that much um, sort of like scholarly thought. Um, and also like she's so that clip is so cool because it's so unlike anything that we had um, and also it really is very well explained like you know yes. the um, Rose sort of like refusing to accept all of it and like like her relationship to help and and being helped and that also connects I think to the American dream thing of like mm-hmm you know rose feels like she needs to pull herself up because she's an american and um it's a really thoughtful submission yes absolutely and just i mean the the thrill of the live uh draw is yeah like my exactly. favorite part it's really exciting um it's like you're you know sitting there in person which is so cool um yeah, yeah i that was wonderful so uh, that you know with with that tarot reading um that concludes our amazing lengthy uh full of incredible scholarly bits and personal stories and vulnerability and amazing quotes and great laughs uh and giggles of the enough wicker uh fan episode we're very excited that was great thank you all so much that was so so far beyond what i think i expected people to call and be like this is my favorite episode goodbye (laughs) (laughs) even though we really tried to to push that that's what we're looking for and these were just so thoughtful and smart and funny and i i got emotional which you know i hate to do so (laughs) (laughs) yes so to let that be a lesson that you have experienced full success in my eyes (laughs) that lauren even teared up (laughs) i did (laughs) well i just wanted to i want to thank everybody uh who submitted um once again so we've got jen f golden girls 85 marin b sarah thomas j west the third nicole g chrissy w rose w perry m reva l george hannah chris gallo barrett adit p carl m Kristen, noel m susan q avery l and louisa l um you are all absolute gems uh your angels all of you and <laughs> i hope that um you and everyone else listening uh, to your wonderful clips can really just, you know, bring this forward, uh, share with other people where we'd love to have some more golden girl scholars in our pockets uh, in 2022. But I think, you know, you, you really, you really, <laughs> you did great because as Lauren said, I think, you know, we, we didn't know what to expect and we were really blown away. And I think that that's the whole purpose of, why we took this sort of like scholarly reading angle of the golden girls on our podcast in the first place is that we're always learning more. <laughs> like the, the part that is the best about the golden girls community is that we teach each other things and, and bring different perspectives and readings and uh, commentary that none of us uh, have ever considered. So really, really appreciate it. And I, I just think uh, 
you're stellar. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. All right, team. Everybody have a happy new year and we'll see you next week.